When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. The whole world is scared to death about inflation. The numbers are through the roof. You've all heard this, 7.5% inflation. That means everything that we're trying to buy, literally everything, is getting more expensive. The last inflation report, the Consumer Price Index that comes out every single month from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there's dozens and dozens of categories. I look through it every month, and usually you've got a few up and a few down. Literally every category was higher. The latest report from the BLS. I can't remember the last time every single thing from pizza to airline tickets to gasoline to used cars to milk, dairy, cheese, you name it, pretty much everything you and I are trying to buy, particularly with four kids in the house, prices through the roof. We also know that the great institution, the Federal Reserve, that is mandated to do two things with our economy, two mandates, one, maximum sustainable employment and price stability, which is just a fancy, confusing way of saying modest, steady inflation. Not too high, not too low, but a Goldilocks amount of price increases so that we can make predictable buying decisions and not worried about price spikes over short periods of time. Well, that hasn't worked. In fact, over the last two years, the Federal Reserve has used this word transitory, meaning that inflation's here today because of the pandemic and cargo ships are stuck and we can't get supplies, but it'll all go away and it'll be fine. Well, it's not fine. In fact, the word transitory has almost become a punchline because the Federal Reserve has just been so wrong for so long. They've even finally taken the word transitory out of their vernacular because, quite frankly, it's kind of embarrassing. We haven't seen inflation or price increases this dramatic since the 1970s. In fact, inflation just hit a 40-year high. And if you go back to the late 1970s, early 1980s, you'll remember Carter Kiss My Gas stickers. Today, I think there's stickers on here in the state of Georgia. You'll see stickers of Joe Biden next to where your gas pump is. And it says, I did that. And I'm not here to encourage Biden blame, but it's not surprising that his latest job approval is as low as we've ever seen it. Prices at the pump go up, presidential approval ratings go down. So how bad is this relative to history? Let's go back and look at the last 60 years to get a gauge on this. If we go back to the summer of 2008, 
CPI hit five and a half, which was a worrisome level, but it didn't get much worse than that. October, though, of 1990, so going back almost two decades before that, we saw inflation at 6.4%. Well, we're already higher than that today at 7.5% for January of 2022. Then you go back to April of 1980, and we saw inflation at over 14%. Imagine a basket of all the goods and services that we use on average jumping almost 15% in a year. Remarkable. Today, I want to help us solve for what we can do to invest in an inflationary environment. But I think it's important to understand the root cause of this because it's a fascinating period in economic history that we're going through that is causing this. We've talked about on previous episodes this just bungee cord of supply demand, meaning that absolute drops in demand, huge rebounds in demand, and it's created a really mismatched economy that's gotten used to operating in almost perfect just-in-time inventory and equilibrium. That was thrown for a loop during the pandemic. The economy shut down, demand went to zero in a lot of cases, and then when it reopened, it skyrocketed. Not to mention, we had labor shortages because of the pandemic itself. So we had factories not able to make the goods, even at a normal demand level, let alone a spike demand level. So the mismatches were all over the board. It wasn't just one. It was a calamity of economic disequilibrium. Compound that with perhaps the most rapid, seismic, and dramatic shift in where we physically are able to work in the history of the world. And we've created brand new behaviors almost overnight. The U.S. economy, pre-pandemic, about one in 70 people could work from home or work from anywhere. That's shifted to one in six. One in 70 to one in six almost overnight. So that's changed the dynamics of real estate. Not just a little bit. We're talking about seismic shifts in massive populations around the globe. It's no wonder you can't find a lake house, a mountain house. For the last 20 years, I've been eyeing lake houses. But because I've done radio on the weekend for the last better part of 20 years and kids and sports, I never thought I was able to actually have the time to go to a lake house. Well, now that I can do radio and podcasting remotely from anywhere as long as we have internet, I thought to myself, well, now, hey, Lynn, let's go look for a lake house. There's typically 10 to 20 lake houses for sale at any given time on any given lake in the entire state of Georgia. Because believe me, I've checked. Go to Zillow right now and check out your local lake. Good luck. It's not that there's not a whole lot of inventory. It's not that it's kind of hard to find the right place. There are no places for sale. Period. End of story. And if you think I'm being dramatic, pull up a map of Georgia on Zillow, go to Lake Burton, go to Lake Raven, go to Lake Hartwell, which is just north in South Carolina, go to Lake Blue Ridge, anywhere, and you're going to have a really difficult time finding anything that's even possible to buy, let alone expensive and through the roof. It's no wonder that we've seen housing prices in the United States which aren't even really all that well reflected in CPI numbers because CPI counts rental increases, not housing price increases. 
It's a wonder from this seismic shift in demand and being able to work from anywhere that housing prices are up 20, 30, 40%, depending where you are in the country. Here's a new one that you haven't heard of. Sure, it might be hard to get pickles or ketchup or houses. What about horses? My dad lives on a farm and he's, we've had horses for my entire life. Horses don't live forever. So when a horse passes away, and it might be 15, 20 years, if you want to keep riding, you're looking for a new horse. And my stepmom is an avid rider. In fact, she's a professional dressage judge. So she's been a professional equestrian for her entire life. And it was time for her to find a new horse. This is her real core pursuit, passion in life in a lot of different ways. And she's been avidly searching. Well, just like lake house demand went through the roof because of the pandemic, so did the purchase of horses. She can't find a horse. She can't find a horse, period, in the United States. Where do you find a horse that you like? Because everyone for the last two years has buying, been buying up every half-decent horse in the United States because we want to be outside. It's not just RVs. It's We got a supply chain shortage when it comes to riding horses. She's literally getting on a plane and going to Germany to try to find a horse. That's how tough it is in the United States. See, I told you that's one you probably haven't heard before. Can't make this stuff up. Well, there's been horse price inflation too. I don't think they put that in the BLS inflation survey, but there's been a lot of horse inflation. And she was worried about her, her budget because now the horses that she's been looking for, the fact she's got to go to Germany, it's going to cost all this money to get a horse back into the United States. And then they have to go through some sort of uh, veterinary protocol. They've got to be in quarantine, not because of COVID, but because of just regular equine diseases that can go from coast to coast. They, they actually fly. I thought that they would, they would come over on a cargo ship, uh, but they fly horses over. And once they get a big, I don't know, the spruce goose filled up with horses, they, then they'll make a trip. So once you get 50 horses, they'll, then they'll make that trip. So you don't even know when it's expensive. So her budget is really kind of way more expensive than she thought. The good news is maybe this is the punchline for the solution to inflation is that it's been a good couple years as an investor. If you've been invested in these markets in the last two years, you've probably made some money. And I said, look, I don't know. I don't think you quite understand how much you guys have made over the last couple of years. I said, it's totally fine to increase your budget by 25 or 30%. This is so much. And, and, and we compare, you could compare this to a car and you say, wow, it's all this money for a horse versus a car. I would contend, and I'm, I don't have a farm. I don't have a horse. I don't live with horses. I grew up with them. Uh, but I would contend that you get 10x utility out of a horse. It's almost like a, it's like a pet and a friend and a vehicle all, and a hobby uh, all together and socialization because you ride with other people. It's like the quintuple Lindy of purchases when it comes to being happy retiree. You get more utility, love, socialization, connection, and enjoyment out of a horse 5x, I would argue 10x that you could of any sort of car or vehicle in the history of the world. That's just my opinion. I know that Ann, my stepmom, would agree.
Now, let's get back to speaking, going from equine inflation to inflation in general. How do we, uh, I talked about this in chapter 11 of this book that I carry around with me. It's called What the Happiest Retirees Know, 10 Habits for Healthy, Secure, Joyful Life. Uh, we took the, the five largest market corrections. And, and let, me, let me back up for a second. So we're going to talk about how to invest around these, in, the, during these inflationary periods. It, you can cover two concepts. One, participation versus perfection. That's essentially discussing how we're timing the market versus just being in the market. It doesn't have to be perfect. You just got to participate. And two, what markets have done historically around times of inflation and what categories did well and didn't do so well. So in chapter 11 of What the Happiest Retirees Know, that's my latest book. I carry it around with me. I'm, I'm sitting with a copy of it right here. What the Happiest Retirees Know, 10 Habits for a Healthy, Secure, and Joyful Life. In chapter 11, we, we took the five largest market corrections since 1990 and calculated the return on what happened if somebody had invested $10,000 in stocks, the S&P 500, at the very best possible time aka perfection, where you would have purchased or invested the money at, at an exact market bottom, nailed the bottom, relative to investing that same $10,000 at the very worst possible time, meaning at the very market peak during that period of time. Or, so that's the first two, perfect timing, the worst possible timing, and then just leaving money in cash. So three options. Cash, we use the three-month treasury bill. Since then, or since I wrote chapter 11, I've actually expanded this in our team all the way back to 1960 through November 2021. Because I wanted to capture these really high inflation periods, hyperinflationary periods that we saw in the 1970s, 1980s. And remember, when inflation is higher, interest rates are typically higher too. We actually see better rates of return on cash during some of these periods. Well, much better rates of return on cash relative to what we see today. So beyond this great supply, demand, and balance, beyond being able to now work from anywhere and the seismic shift in our location, the Federal Reserve, in order to help get us through the economy, through the pandemic and the closure of the economy and all of these disruptions, created massive, massive amounts of new liquidity, meaning they added to the money supply. The Federal Reserve literally, and Congress, literally added money to the monetary system. Not a little bit of money, but the overall money supply in the United States, which is something that gets measured very specifically because it's an important number, has jumped or jumped during the pandemic by almost 40%. So imagine... Your whole economy is running on 10 five-gallon buckets of money. And all of a sudden, within a year or two, there's four brand new buckets full of money. Think of too much money chasing too few goods. What happens? Well, economics 101, prices go up. Perhaps an even bigger contributor to inflation than our changes in behavior. So we've had some period of times when cash has had a pretty significant rate of return. It wasn't that long ago, when I started the investment business 25 years ago, a 4% money market wasn't that strange. Oh, 4% on money market. Bonds were much higher than that. And then we would invest in stocks way back then because the expected returns for stocks, of course, were even higher. What's interesting is today, 
the argument for stocks continues on a relative basis to be even stronger because we have interest rates so low, inflation high, meaning that the real rate of return today on a 1% money market, which is in itself hard, relatively hard to find, is really negative 6% because inflation is 7.5%. If I'm only getting one, then I'm really losing in a real basis 6.5%. So we go back all the way to the 1960s and we look at this exercise of understanding what the difference would be between investing in the S&P 500 perfectly, in the S&P 500, the opposite of perfect, the worst timing, relative to leaving the money in cash and letting it accumulate with interest from a cash account. During each of the nine significant corrections, going back to 19. 60, going back to 1960, and they, they vary in magnitude anywhere from down 19% to down 57% during the great financial crisis. Investing in stocks, of course, with perfect timing, but even with the worst timing, still beat cash every single time. I'll give a couple of examples. Let's go back to 1973, where the peak was January of 1973. And the trough was about 22 months later, October of 1974. The market fell 48.2%. So terrible timing was would have been putting money to work in January of 73, then experienced a 48% drop. The perfect timing would have been putting that same 10 grand to work in October of 74 when the market hit its bottom. Relative to sticking the same $10,000 and leaving it in cash for a money market-like return. Back then, again, of course, much higher than money markets are today. But where would that leave us by the end of 2021? Perfect timing netted us from 10 to 2.8 million. Terrible timing netted us from 10,000 to 1.5 million. Still an incredible amount of wealth accumulation. Relative to what a money market rate of return Again, this is the three-month treasury bill, much higher back then than it is today, but continuing to reinvest in the treasury bill over and over again. 10,000 would have turned into 88, 88,000. Still a positive rate of return. But even relative to the worst possible timing for stocks, still beat cash by 17 and a half times. 17 and a half X, terrible timing on stocks relative to cash. Now, this is over a longer period of time, but it proves the point that it's much less important that you achieve market timing perfection and much more important to achieve just good old-fashioned market participation. Get in the game. Now, let's go back to the 1960s and look at investing in different periods of time with big inflation. And not every one of these periods had 7 to 10% CPI rates, but we wanted to compare different inflationary periods over the course of the last 60 years. So if we go back to 1960, so 1960 through 1972, this is before stagflation kicked in. CPI averaged about just shy of 3% during that period of time. So a manageable amount of inflation. 
stocks in general averaged about 9% a year through that period of time. But during that slightly high inflationary period, not dramatic, but slightly high, there was a difference between how growth stocks did versus value stocks. Remember, growth stocks, companies that might have really high price-to-earnings multiples, they have less current cash flow, so their value is more predicated on their earnings way into the future relative to value-oriented companies or more dividend-paying stocks that are judged more on their current cash flows. Well, in higher, slightly higher, or much higher periods of inflation, value-oriented stocks tend to do a little bit better than growth, which is the case here. From 1960 to 1972, in this moderately high inflationary environment, growth companies averaged around what the S&P 500 did, around 9%. But value, on the other hand, or more dividend-oriented companies, averaged 12.5% per year. How about 2009 to 2021? This is the post-financial crisis world. Well, that's a period of time where the Fed was worried about deflation. In that big stretch of time, again, we're talking 09 after the financial crisis through last year, 2021, we had really low inflation. CPI averaged 1% percent per year. Well, even though the market averaged about 15% per year, it's been a great run since 09, there was a pretty big difference between value and growth. Again, value-oriented companies, more judged on their current cash flow, in a low inflationary environment, averaged about 12% per year. But that low inflation really favored growth, growth, growth-oriented companies that said to the marketplace, we don't have a whole lot of profits today because we'll have profits way into the future. Well, when the interest rate's super low, it's okay. It's okay to wait. So the market during these periods of low inflation favor the growth group, not dividend-paying companies. Big difference. Growth averaged over 18% a year during that stretch. Value companies only 12. Not that value or dividend stocks were bad, but they paled in comparison to the go-go growth days, most of that tech from 09 to 2021. 1973 to 1982, stagflation. Tough time for the U.S. economy. High inflation, low or stagnant economic growth. The overall market actually did probably better than most people would have remembered. SP 500 actually did okay, Averaged about 5% per year through that rough period of time. But here's a big difference. That high inflationary period was really punitive. That high inflationary environment, it was in the 6, 10, 12, 14% range, wreak havoc on growth stocks. Again, think growth stocks as what we came to know as the FANG companies. Lots of growth. Not a whole lot of cash flow. Well, growth companies during stagflation only average about 2% a year. While value, on the other hand, dividend-paying companies, cash-flowing entities, average 11% per year. So what does it all mean? If we're really looking at an objective assessment of all these periods of time, the market in general, still 
did relatively well through all these inflationary scenarios. But it's important to understand that when we do get inflation or sustained or we have a sustained inflation, history shows us that value or dividend-oriented companies tend to do at least a little bit better or sometimes a lot better than their growth counterparts. Now I want to talk a little bit more. I've been talking about growth versus value here. I want to dig into some more specifics about this. And I'm not making an absolute statement that you should sell everything in your portfolio and buy only dividend-paying stocks and only value companies if you're worried about inflation over the next five years. What I am doing, though, I want to point out that the Russell 1000 Value Index outperformed the Russell 1000 Growth Index and the S&P 500 and CPI during the highest inflationary periods we've seen over the last 50 years. The question is, why? Why does value tend to do better? Well, part of this has to do with demand elasticity versus inelasticity. Value companies tend to produce or provide products and services that are more inelastic, meaning that even if prices go up a whole lot, people still kind of have to buy the same amount. Gas is a perfect example. Diapers. Price of diapers can go up 30% and you're pretty much going to buy the same amount of diapers. If you're a parent, you understand. Whereas growth companies that are a little newer, faster growing, they tend to have products that are more elastic, meaning that a 5% price increase can really affect how much you buy of a particular product. Hamburgers are a great example of a product that has a pretty high demand elasticity, meaning that if the price of hamburgers goes up 30%, there's lots of other substitutes. So you could easily say, hey, we're going to do PB&J. We're easily going to buy hot dogs instead. We're easily going to go to pizza instead. So think of something like steak or I'm thinking meat, high-end meat. Let's call it ribeyes Very, or filet. Let's do filet. Highly elastic demand, meaning that if prices for steak go up 25%, that's a big chunk because you can look at that in the grocery store. Wait a minute. I'm going for hamburger instead. Ground chuck. I'm going for hot dogs instead. Easily substitutable. I can easily go somewhere else. So a little bit of bump in price. I'm a consumer. I'm going somewhere else. Remember, that doesn't happen with diapers. You could also think of these two categories as this. Must-haves and nice-to-haves. Think must-haves are diapers, nice-to-haves, think steak, or maybe even a Peloton bike. Prices go up, I'm not getting that Peloton anymore. So groceries, phone, utilities, gas, medical care, those are all in the inelastic camp, aka those are the must-haves. You kind of have to buy them no matter what happens with price. So not a whole lot of change in demand when the price increases versus a steak dinner versus a Peloton versus the most high-end iPad, fancy trip, new car. Those are all in the elastic camp. They're all nice to have, which means that there's a substantial change in demand for product or service when the price increases. So think value or dividend-oriented companies in the must-haves. Think growth-growth companies in the nice-to-haves. I can't think of a better example than Peloton. Thank you to our producer, Mallory, for that. Mallory Boggs Marketing. 
inelastic companies have more pricing power, which means that if their expenses increase due to inflation, our topic of the day, they can pass those costs on to the consumer by raising the price of their goods and services. Yet another reason why companies with this must-have or inelasticity, value-oriented companies tend to kind of do okay during inflationary periods, just like we're going through in 2022. So if we're trying to apply this must-have versus nice-have and this inelasticity versus elasticity, we can start to understand why the market judges these two different categories during inflationary times. Growth companies tend to earn less dollars today because they reinvest most of their profits and their earnings back into the business because they're placing a greater priority on maximizing their future earnings, aka future dollars. Well, value companies, on the other hand, tend to place a greater focus on maximizing their present earnings, aka today's dollars, and less on reinvestment for amplifying future earnings. So if inflation causes future dollars to be less valuable, because inflation's running wild, and growth companies tend to earn the majority of their money in the future, hey guys, we'll get to profits eventually, the issue becomes more clear. So as much as I love value-oriented companies, the real message here is to understand the difference between growth and value, who does better or worse in inflationary environments, because we're in one, and we'll be one in one for a little while. But in the end, participation over perfection just tells us to stay in the game. Get in the game, stay in the game. So we can protect our purchasing power and protect our ability to be able to continue to buy steaks. Dad, can we get steaks? Well, if I were answering that question in retirement, it all depends. Have I participated and stayed in the game? And if you have, the answer should be a resounding, yeah, absolutely. Hey, y'all, this is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This podcast is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. It is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment or financial planning considerations. Please refer to the full disclosure in the podcast description for any additional information.